Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Sharp Dressed Man, recorded by ZZ Top and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Billy Gibbons. With two Grammy nominations, 16 top 10 singles, over 50 million albums sold, and induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Gibbons is a legend who is responsible for some of the most enduring classic rock tracks of all time. He'll join us by phone from Las Vegas, where he's currently holed up following the cancellation of ZZ Top's residency at the Venetian in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Part 1 Man, it's crazy listening back to our last episode, which we launched on March 17th. Um, we, even though we, we launched it that day, we had recorded the part one conversation with Justin back on March 9th. Yeah. And we talked about the Nashville tornado. We talked about several things with, with Justin, but we didn't even mention coronavirus, which felt like, right. you know, a distant threat at, at that point. Um, and wow, now it's all any of us can, can think or talk about. It's, it's amazing to think that was only three weeks ago that we recorded the, the intro or the uh, Beavis and Butthead portion of the show, as my father <laughs> calls it, uh, <laughs> to, to the last uh, episode. I mean, man, three weeks, the whole world has changed. Yeah, to, to paraphrase something I read this morning, these three weeks have been the least favorite decade of my life. Um, <laughs> It's I'm like sure that eternity. has nothing to do with the fact that you have two children under the age of five uh, oh, in your house at all. Well, yeah, you didn't hear me say that. I mean, listen, I mean, I, <laughs> I, we've actually been having some some really good times, some good dad time, taking my kid up, you know, on the in the yard and play. We've had some little picnics and watched a lot of Disney movies. Um, we have had some good quality time, but I will say that uh, the house gets real, real small when you've got Man, uh, I bet. a five-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old running, running through it. So, um we're going to yeah. run out of band-aids pretty soon. <laughs> well, it's it's great that you guys are are doing your part. We're really staying in over here as well and yeah. just trying to hunker down. I mean, man, this thing is is serious and we're already, you know, seeing that uh hitting the the songwriting world for sure. I know. And uh, you know, it's it's um there it seems like there's so much news coming at us from day to day. I, and we are going to do uh kind of a you know, some sort of tribute uh, in, in an upcoming episode um, to to some that that we've lost. Um, but at, at this point, I, we can you know Joe Diffie, um, John Prine is in in critical condition right now. Um, I heard that Jackson Brown had the virus, but um, we're we're hoping that that things are pulling out okay for him. Um, but man, yeah, it's, it's wild. It I affects like, everybody. Yeah, I feel like everyone uh, listening and everyone around is is gonna have some way in which it touches their hearts. Uh, my hope and my prayer uh, for for all of us is that it it doesn't come too too close to home. Um, pray that each one of you are, are staying safe and staying healthy. Um, frankly, staying home. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we need to be doing right now. 
and uh, you know you you can entertain yourself with uh, with previous episodes of of Songcraft. Uh, yep, you have, can uh, we have a few. You can <laughs> you can watch uh, watch Disney movies with your kids all day. But yeah, uh, um, yeah man, it's uh, that, that's so true. Just taking this thing seriously, staying home. Um, you know, it's it's not easy. We're all used to living pretty fast paced lives, but um, you know, now is the time to just kind of start slowing things down and and uh, and and really be conscious and, and conscientious. Uh, also, a great time to to. Uh, to be catching up on some reading. True. For those for those of you who are readers and who are intellectual enough to push your glasses up your nose a bit and get into a book, uh, <laughs> this would be a great time to do that. Uh, I just finished my Elvis in Vegas uh, ebook, uh, which is a fantastic oh. book. Um, nice. But yeah, there there are uh, l- lots of books out there about you know our favorite topic here. And in fact, uh, a couple episodes back, um, we we talked about one of our listeners, uh, Blake, who had written and asking us for book recommendations uh, for aspiring songwriters. And we ask you, uh, the listeners, to send in your recommendations too. Yeah. So um, Blake had basically wanted to know, you know, if we had ideas or, or recommendations and and, uh, you know, I think we found ourselves uh, we both kind of went, what an amazing question. And we were kind yeah. of going, we might not have the best answers. So let's <laughs> let's crowdsource For this once. Um, so we uh, yeah, yeah. For the, the only time we didn't know everything. Um <laughs> But uh, got some great email responses just to share a few. Uh, one of our listeners, Bob Hunt, said, I like Jimmy Webb's Toonsmith, Inside the Art of Songwriting. Uh, he also recommended Tom T. Hall's 1976 book, The Songwriter's Handbook, which uh, he likes because uh, he said it's just really practical. Uh, he said, if you want a good technical book, I liked Pat Patterson from the University of Berkeley College of Music, um, the book uh, Essential Guide to Rhyming and another The Essential Guide to Lyric Form and Structure. Uh, a guy named Jim Smothers, another listener, wrote in. He said, uh, another vote for Jimmy Webb's Toonsmith. Jimmy Webb, of course, is a Songcraft uh, uh, alum, been a guest on the show before, so cool to see him uh, uh, shouted out. Um, Jim also recommended Pat and Pete Luboff's book, 101 Songwriting Wrongs and How to Write Them. Uh, he also recommended Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn's If They Ask You, You Can Write a Song. Uh, Al, of course, also another uh, Songcraft guest in the past. Um, again, uh, Tom T. Hall, yet another Songcraft guest, uh, Songwriter's <laughs> I Handbook. Sense a theme. I, I guess I guess we've had some really great songwriting book writer so. songwriting book writers on the show. Um, he also recommended Bill Domain's Behind the Muse, which he said is uh, interviews, not like a how-to, but has some really great insights. Um, also, a listener named Ben uh, wrote in um, suggesting uh, The Craft of Lyric Writing by Sheila Ostrander, which I think he means Sheila Davis. Uh, I've read this book before, and I second that recommendation. It's a, it's a great book. Um, and it's possible that Sheila Davis has gotten married and is now named Sheila Ostrander. So who knows? But anyway, the, the book is called The Craft of, of Lyric Writing by Sheila someone, so you should be able to find it. Um, and then uh, a listener named Cordell suggested uh, some books by some Berkeley professors. One is Writing Better Lyrics by Pat Patterson. I think he was already mentioned. Um, Beginning Songwriting by Andrea Stolpe and Popular Songwriting by Andrea Stolpe. And then he also suggests uh, The Songwriting Handbook by Tom T. Hall. Third vote for Mr. Tom T. Hall. Uh, A book called The Addiction Formula by a writer named, I think, Friedman Findison. Uh, Anyway, The Addiction Formula. Interesting title. 
I don't know what that has to do with songwriting, but I didn't look it up. So, hey, <laughs> check it out, folks. Uh, and then he recommends a book called Song Maps by Simon Hawkins. So tons of book ideas for uh, yeah. the songwriter who wants to improve their craft. So thank you guys for, for sharing those with us. I think that uh, that book's by Simon Le Bon, but then again, <laughs> he may have gotten married. So I, I'm not sure. Maybe Simon Hawkins could be right. <laughs> it could be. Could be. It could be. Uh you know, uh, we also asked Scott's dad, Woody Bomar, a songwriter and longtime music publisher who does a ton of songwriting mentor sessions and, and he keeps up with this stuff. We asked him kind of, you know, what were his favorite books? And here's his list. Um, about songwriting, he's got Song Building, Mastering Lyric Writing by Marty Dodson and Bill O'Hanlon. Bill's, he's part of the Songcraft Bill community, was, isn't he? B- Bill is a loyal Songcraft listener and, uh, and, and huge champion and cheerleader. So, yeah. Well, shout out to Bill. Um, then uh, Woody's got Six Steps to Songwriting Success. That's a, a very alliterative title uh, by Jason <laughs> Bloom. Um, Murphy's Laws of Songwriting, the book by Ralph Murphy. Um, then we've got uh, some books about the music business in general. Uh, All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald S. Passman. I can vouch for that book. Um, yeah, great book. I still have my well-worn copy of it that I remember reading uh, as a young college graduate trying to figure this thing out, um, just talks about management, attorneys, publishers, percentages, touring, merchandising, all it just an in- incredible book. Um, then there's Music, Money, and Success, The Insider's Guide to Making Money in the Music Business um, by Jeff and Todd Brabeck. Um, the Twins from ASCAP. Yes, uh, yes. So, but yeah, <laughs> n- another detailed book, uh, a couple of industry pros about you know, all parts of the music business that affect songwriters. Yeah, I know Jeff very well, and, and uh, I know Todd by reputation. Those guys are very knowledgeable and uh, definitely a great resource for people who want to understand the business in depth. Um, so we've got a couple of songwriting books uh, by um, previous Songcraft guests that we're going to give away. Um, one is called The Ultimate Book on Songwriting by Al Kasha, and the second one is called How Sweet It Is, A Songwriter's Reflections on Music, Motown, and the Mystery of the Muse by Lamont Dozier, who was our guest on the 100th episode of Songcraft. And then um, based on that interview, uh, Lamont and I put our heads together and I helped him write his autobiography slash kind of songwriter's memoir, which has uh, his life story and a ton of great practical advice for songwriters as well. So um, we're going to give one lucky winner um, two books. We've, I don't think we've ever given away two things at once to the same person. So this is kind of exciting. Wow. Um, so in order to enter that contest, um, go to our website, songcraftshow.com, and uh, contact us through the contact form on the page there. And write us a little um, message about why you desperately need some help uh, with your songwriting development, and uh, we will just send we will us this ins- terrible song, and then we'll know <laughs> yeah. that you need these books. <laughs> yeah. So either write us a little a little short message about why you need help, or send us the worst song you ever wrote. <laughs> I'm not joking. Literally, do that. Send us the worst song you ever wrote, and then we will, we will decide. <laughs> we will decide who is most deserving or most needy uh, of this uh, prize package. Um, so again, songcraftshow.com. Hit the contact form. And uh, then you might be eligible to uh, to win uh, some advice directly from previous Songcraft guests, Alcasha and Lamont Dozier. And man, just thinking about like Tom T. Hall and and Jimmy Webb and Lamont and Al, these guys who've written, literally written the book on songwriting. They've <laughs> yeah. all been Songcraft guests. I mean, sometimes it's I just crazy. pinch myself thinking about 
you know, the people that we get to to talk with on this yeah. show. And that has never been more true than this week. No. And, and if I were sitting there with you right now, I'd pinch you because we're <laughs> about to have this conversation with Billy Gibbons. Uh, I mean, I, I almost fell out of my chair um, when I heard <laughs> I called him up and you, you don't hear this part on the on the conversation. But he answered the phone. He just said Gibbons. And I, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And then uh, as as our listeners will hear as we get into it, um, he tells us he's a fan, a fan of the show, which I if if that's the truth, man. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and as you'll also hear, Paul mentioned if he was here right now, he would pinch me. This is the first time we've ever really done this, uh, you know, via uh, telephone. Like we are not together in the same place uh, right now. Um, and. Uh, obviously we've done plenty of phone interviews before, but we've never done phone interviews where Paul and I were not together. Um, right. and so this is, a uh, the first, uh, the maiden voyage of, of the COVID-19 era of Songcraft, where in order to practice social distancing, all parties were in a different location. So, um, <laughs> Paul and I were at our respective homes. Billy was in Las Vegas. Um, and we managed to figure out a way to get all three of us communicating at the same time. But unfortunately the quality, uh, on the phone end suffered a little bit. And so Billy's track, um, did not come out, uh, as clear and clean as is typical for us. Um, and so we've done some work to, to tweak it and get it sounding as good as possible. It's, it's a little, um, you know, it's noticeable, but the content is so fabulous that in the first five minutes, you'll completely forget about the kind of phone sound that's going on and you'll be yeah. absorbed as we were by this man's just uh, wisdom and humor and and just an incredibly fun guy to talk to, really insightful. Yeah, so without any further ado, here's Billy Gibbons. Part two. Sharp-dressed man Billy Gibbons is best known as the founder, lead guitarist, and primary vocalist of ZZ Top. With 16 top 10 singles on Billboard's mainstream rock chart, the self-dubbed Little Old Band from Texas has earned two Grammy nominations and sold over 50 million albums. As a songwriter, Gibbons and his bandmates Dusty Hill and Frank Beard are responsible for such classic rock staples as LaGrange, Waiting for the Bus, Jesus Just Left Chicago, Tush, and Cheap Sunglasses. The enormous success of the group's Eliminator album ushered in a new era of MTV-friendly videos for Gimme All Your Lovin', Sharp Dress Man, and Legs that launched a wave of subsequent hits such as Sleeping Bag, Stages, Rough Boy, Double Back, Concrete and Steel, and My Head's in Mississippi. With 15 ZZ Top studio albums and two solo albums under his belt, Gibbons continues to record and tour after more than 50 years with his legendary band. Rolling Stone ranked him at number 32 among the 100 greatest guitarists of all time, and the Texas House of Representatives named ZZ Top official heroes for the state of Texas. In 2004, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Keith Richards, who called the band the heart of rock and roll. Billy, welcome to Songcraft. Glad to be here. This is quite exciting. Uh been a fan of Songcraft, uh, as well as my buddy Jack White. Uh, so we can uh, we can get down to business and 
get things in good order here. Love nice, that. nice. Well, I understand that you're in Las Vegas where ZZ Top was supposed to be performing a, a brief residency at the Venetian, which has been canceled due to this coronavirus scare. And you know, suddenly all of our lives have have been put on pause. Everything's kind of uncharted waters. How are you coping with this new reality? Well, we're in the uh, stay-at-home zone uh, with most folks. Um, yes, we were uh, looking forward to this uh, nice residency in Las Vegas. It would be uh, a return engagement there at the Venetian, which is a, not only a great room, it's uh, quite a lively gathering when uh, the top enters the picture. Uh, I actually drove over from the Hacienda in Los Angeles in advance of the uh, event, and I wisely thought it would be uh, prudent to put in a uh, a little uh, electric guitar and a small amplifier just to uh, create some riffs in the hotel room. And uh, on arrival, uh, I pulled into the house, unloaded the uh, gear, realizing I had left the connecting cable back at the house. Oh, no. <laughs> so... Fortunately, Amazon is still making the round. So before the end of this interview, I may be able to plug in and uh, and slam a few with you. <laughs> wow. Nice, awesome. nice. Well, Billy, few bands are as associated with a particular state as ZZ Top is with Texas. Um, I understand you guys grew up in Houston and that your father was an orchestra conductor and a concert pianist. Obviously, you chose a different musical path than your dad, but how do you think growing up in a musical household gave you a different experience than some of your peers? Interesting question uh, in that our household was always full of uh, sonic mischief. Um, but, uh, it actually started when my mom took my younger sister and I to see Elvis Presley, who was performing in Houston back in 1956. Oh, wow. And uh, I kind of got an idea of uh, a direction that seemed to be rather appealing. And then uh, shortly thereafter, oh, about a year went by, my dad, uh, we piled into the car. He said, come on, uh, I've, I've got some business to do down at Bill Holford's recording studio. And upon arrival, he planted me in a chair and he said, uh, if you need me, I'll be in the office, but sit here because uh, a band is going to be making some records today and I think you might like it. And no sooner had he turned around, the door opened, and in walked B.B. King and his orchestra. <laughs> oh, uh, we had a full dose of uh, musical input. Yeah, when I saw B.B. doing what he was doing with the guitar, that kind of centered it. Uh, Elvis for one and B.B. for the other. I just said, yep, that's for me. Well, you know, in in the song Heard It on the X, you know, you pretty much lay it out right there. Do you remember back in 1966, Country Jesus, Hillbilly Blues, That's Where I Learned My Licks. Talk a little bit about some of the, the music you were hearing on the radio that was, you know, really uh, inspiring you when you were a teenager. Well, yes, I've spoken uh, at great length with uh, our fearless bass player, Dusty Hill, and our beardless drummer, Mr. Frank Beard. <laughs> and uh, coincidentally, we all three had uh, pretty much the same kind of influences, uh, specifically, as you point out, uh, the crazy border radio stations broadcasting from Mexico, namely uh, XERF. Uh, hmm. They started broadcasting around 
day for the transmitters to warm up, uh, and it took all night for them to cool down. It was 500,000 watts of power, which was, to give you some idea, uh, WLS in Chicago comes into the southern borders of Houston, Texas, like a police call, and they were 50,000 watts. You can imagine uh, cranking that up 10 times, up to 500,000 uh, was was pretty impressive and through the late night hours you could hear it Uh, country uh, gospel hillbilly and of course blues that uh, that pretty much became the cornerstone of of where we started and where we continue today well your first real splash as a songwriter came with 99th floor which was a, a regional hit you wrote for your band the moving sidewalks which i believe opened shows for the doors and the animals and, and the Jimi hendrix experience back in the 60s first got into writing songs of your own and who some of your early models were in terms of understanding song structure and, and how to put a piece of music together? Yes, uh, songwriting. Uh, going back to some of the early influences, uh, blue, big blues uh, numbers from the 50s were still being heard around uh, Texas uh, during the, uh, I call it the rescue when the British invasion came in, and uh, of course, groups like the Rolling Stones, the Animals, even the Beatles were borrowing from this great American art form, which was running the risk of evaporating. It was uh, kind of on the way out until the Brits gave it a, a breath of fresh air, and uh, they had a twist in the approach. It wasn't simple 12-bar blues. It was 12-bar blues with uh, a lot of other bars in between. <laughs> so, songwriting, uh, yeah, songwriting has, has remained a uh, rather, rather interesting outing. Um, you, you, you may uh, find yourself just daydreaming or, or driving down the street and some event or some uh, happenstance will stimulate a thought. Uh, just earlier, I was speaking about uh, what to do if the food were to run short, which it will not, but uh, it brought up the notion of how many guys uh, know how to make soup, something as simple as soup. Hmm. And, uh, you know, reviewing a couple of recipes seems pretty easy. But uh, it did simulate a title for a new song uh, called A Man, A Can, and a Microwave. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. That's good. There you go. The first song born of coronavirus uh, (laughs) times. Yeah. You know, 
obviously you guys, your influences are very clear um, in terms of that blues and, and Texas stuff. Did the British invasion, you, you mentioned the, the British invasion happening. Did, did that type of songwriting uh, influence you much? Yes. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, one of the early tracks that uh, got released uh, pre-Easy Top was the Moving Sidewalks. And uh, we had a pretty good ride with the song 99th Floor. Um, it, uh, it's got, of course, bluesy retentions, but we, we tried to step it up and add a few extra this and that along the way. Um, it wound up being picked up uh, from a label in New York, Wand, and someone said, we, we really enjoyed uh, tracking down your, your famous song, 99th Floor, on the Wand label. And uh, we loved the Wand label because that's where Louie Louie sprang from. Oh, yeah. So you get all of these songwriting influences from left, right, and center. But uh, I think the cornerstone today, it would be safe to say that uh, it's been, them blues that keeps bringing us back. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Well, you know, a lot of fans were surprised when they started hearing keyboards on ZZ Top Records in the 1980s. But if we go back to 1969 and the song Salt Lick, which was the very first single released by an early incarnation of the band, you know, we hear plenty of keyboard in the form of, of organ. a couple of years before the group released its first album in 1971 by which point we hear more of that kind of greasy Texas blues sound that you're known for on songs like Somebody Else Been Shaking Your Tree that's interesting is that Salt Lick and Somebody Else Been Shaking Your Tree are both songs that you wrote solo. Um, give us a little insight into your progression as a songwriter in that, you know, very early period as ZZ Top was finding its voice and its sound. Yes, the moving sidewalks had started gaining momentum and uh, suddenly the keyboard player and the bass player were uh, called into military service. So the drummer and I uh, kept focus um, and enlisted the uh, talents of a rather gifted uh, fellow on the Hammond B3 organ, uh, Lanier Gregg. And uh, as a trio, we had no bass player. Lanier said, well, I'll handle it on the bass pedals. Uh, that was the first breath of the of ZZ Top, and with such a uh, demanding uh, call from 
three guys. Uh, we, we we stayed the course, and uh, I must say that the sound of the Hammond organ was so rich and full. Um, our our skinny little trio uh, seemed to come across in a big way, hmm. uh, as we soon discovered. And as the old saying goes, "There's not a bad note to be found on a Hammond B3." <laughs> <Right. laughs> and uh, we we were certainly prone to uh, you know dragging every ounce of uh, sonic uh, specialness from the Hammond, and uh, and then of course. Oh, it, it, the ZZ Top's uh, lineup morphed into uh, another trio, which uh, finally gelled with when Dusty uh, followed Frank, and the three of us got together uh, for a kind of an audition session. And I said, uh, "Why don't we? Why don't we try a simple shuffle? Let's uh, key of C, shuffle and C." And we thought of three or four minutes would give us some idea if it was going to work. Well, three hours later, the song was still going, <laughs> plugging away, wow. and we were we were grinning all the while. That's when I knew it. That's when I knew it. we it was going to stick. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So you had to kind of uh, adjust, obviously, your your writing style for this. You know what had been a Hammond band into now this three piece, you know, guitar based drums. Yes, and I think it's fair to say very early on uh, between the three of us. ZZ Top hit the Billboard singles chart for the first time with Francine from your second album. But I want to ask you about another song from that record, Just Got Paid, which has become a ZZ Top staple. Bill Ham, who was the group's longtime manager and record producer, and he's credited as a writer on five of the songs on that album. You know, when you look at a band like the Beatles, you recognize what an impact George Martin had on their creative development. In what ways did Bill Ham influence you guys as songwriters in those early years? Bill uh, pulled out all the stops. Uh, he made way to our afternoon uh, get-togethers in such a uh, powerful and impacting manner. And uh, I believe it would be fair to bring in uh, another influential uh, element, which came, again, from uh, England when Fleetwood Mac began in 67. 
uh, it was the four-piece blues band, not the pop band that Fleetwood Mac has enjoyed over the past couple of decades. But right. way back when, it was Mick Fleetwood on drums, uh, Jeremy Spencer on slide guitar, John McVie on bass, and of course, the gifted and talented Peter Green leading the charge on guitar. Right. And uh, they had they had released a song uh, entitled "Oh Well," and if you listen to the guitar figure, it's it's a rather sophisticated, intertwining piece of the six string magic. And uh, I remember uh, attempting to unravel the uh, the riff, and I stumbled into "Just Got Paid." Well, fortunately, Bill was. Uh, Bill Ham was doing his manager's job, and uh, his eyes grew large, and he, he smiled, and he, he nodded and said, keep going down that avenue. <laughs> and within, uh, within a few minutes, we had uh, the start of Just Got Paid, which brings us up uh, to another point of songwriting. Uh, as many songs and songwriters that I've enjoyed working with it seems the 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 works that come together unexpectedly and very rapidly seem to be grabbing that uh, mystical magic that uh, is floating overhead keith richards called it the stream of creativity it's always flowing overhead and uh, it's coming at you and he said the real challenge is to look way over the horizon and uh, stick your finger in the water way down the line because it's going to take some time for it to, to come overhead. He said, uh, but you, and you don't want to miss that moment. Hmm. So uh, those are, I don't know, uh, songwriters will more than likely tend to agree. It's unexpected, but when those moments hit, you can feel it way down deep inside, and uh, that's when you put pencil to the paper and see what shakes. I love that. Wow, we actually got insight from two legends in that one comment from both you and Keith Richards there. <laughs> um, but, the you know, the band's real breakthrough came with 1973's Trace Ombre's album and the single LaGrange. All the ZZ Top songs were credited to you and your two bandmates, but the writing credits were more diverse in the early days, and this was the first successful single that was credited to you, Frank, and Dusty. What can you tell us about how that one came together? Yes, uh, 1973 was the release of uh, Trace Ombre's uh, It Remains, one of our all-time favorites, uh, not only sonically, but uh, the famous gatefold uh, double uh, photo 
anybody to lean uh, south of the border. <laughs> um, I, I recall uh, we were in the studio in Texas, and we had uh, been knocking around for a few hours, and this kind of um, distinctive beat accompanied with the uh, now famous uh, rhythm track uh, left us with kind of uh, curious. How, how do we get in? How do we get into singing along with this? <laughs> and fortunately, I had been a fan of Buddy Holly and the Crickets for ever and ever. It seems like uh, Buddy Holly, of course, had a big hit with the song entitled Peggy Sue, which later prompted the release of a follow-up called Peggy Sue Got Married. Right. And in those lyrics, Buddy Holly exclaims, uh, uh, did she really get married? I don't know. He wasn't sure. And it was the first time that uh, kind of an open-ended uh, verse was left with a question mark. And uh, if you listen to the lyrics of LaGrange, uh, the closing line is, uh, I might be mistaken. Right. And of course, it doesn't rhyme with anything. It's just a statement. Right. But uh, those kind of curious, those kind of curious moments uh, seem to make sense. Well, it didn't make sense until we were uh, back up in the corner, uh, trying to figure a way to sing along with it, and we decided to fold the tent. We were, I think, we we're going to go out and get a barbecue or something. Uh, give it one more go. And I remember I was sitting in a chair, and, and uh, it became kind of a uh, what I was thinking would be a, a throwaway uh, delivery. But the light went on, and the uh, hands were waving. Keep it going, keep it going. And again, it's uh, those unpredictable moments that uh, you grab onto it. If you're lucky, you get it. And uh, fortunately for us, that became one of the that became the first top ten for ZZ Top, 1973. Well, one of my favorite songs on Trace Hombres, in fact, probably my favorite song of the entire ZZ Top catalog, is "Waiting for the Bus," um, which you wrote with Dusty. And what I love about that song is that great guitar riff. terms of your songwriting the riffs that you write and even the guitar tones that you get on your records are as central to what we're hearing as listeners as you know the underlying compositions are and it's it's hard for me to imagine you picking up an acoustic guitar to to kind of quietly you know write in your living room which maybe is what happens but i'm curious if if most of your writing process happens in the studio or in in rehearsals with the other guys um you know is it is it very much kind of an electric loud experience as you're writing songs 
Yeah, all of the above. Uh, we could be in the studio. We could be on on stage, for that matter. Um, but it's always it's always loud. Uh, we don't own an acoustic guitar. So said, <laughs> What's the deal? Said, well, no, I said, the acoustic guitar is bad luck. Said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, if you had a choice between a uh, cigarette ocean-going offshore racer or a sailboat, which one would you go to? <laughs> I mean, no blowboats for a ZZ Top. Let's, let's put pedal to pedal. So, yeah, it's it's a loud event. America's <laughs> loudest songwriter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, when we spoke of, uh, you know, where these things fall into place, uh, I do recall uh, pulling up to uh, a, a gig in Florence, Alabama, and uh, the promoter had secured a rodeo arena. Uh, it was dirt floored. It was uh, middle of summer. It was just unbelievably oppressive. But uh, we, we decided to conduct a sound check in the afternoon, but it was so miserably hot. We knew that we, we didn't stand a chance. If we didn't you know, let's give it one song, and hopefully the guys in town will be satisfied. But uh, I lit into that one opening riff, and uh, the lighting director at the time, he was on the side of the stage, he gave it the thumbs up. And uh, we came off, and, and Dusty corralled me in the dressing room. He said, man, he said, uh, what can we do with that riff? He said, I can't believe it came together so quickly. And uh, again... Uh, going back to our Texas roots, Roy Head had uh, topped the charts with uh, his famous uh, single from 1965, Treat Her Right. And, of course, your record collection wasn't complete until you had uh, a copy of Treat Her Right <laughs> in the record box. Uh, if you'll notice, on the back, the flip side of Treat Her Right was an instrumental called Fresh Hog, which in Texas terms, was another way of saying Rico, plush, fine, uh, it's kind of the end yeah. all. And I said, uh, why, don't we, why, don't we, why don't we borrow this word from Roy Head? We just call it touch. And uh, Dusty went off and uh, came back, and within a few minutes we started scribbling it down. Again, another five-minute tip, man. Tush, of course, was a huge single for you guys. Um, and just the fact that ZZ Top, from the earliest days, was such a road band. I mean, you guys were touring nonstop in those days. Um, as a songwriter, you know, when you stumble on a lick like that, or when you when you catch one of those great ideas in the stream, I would imagine the fact that you are a live band, the fact that you are playing in front of people every night, kind of hones your instincts in knowing hey, this is going to work, or, or this is not going to work. I mean, w to what degree does being such a, a live player 
kind of shape you in terms of when it's time to, you know, start writing songs for another record? Well, yes, playing live and playing in the studio are horses of different colors. Um, the studio demands some very uh, strict adherence to simple uh, bottom lines, or the bottom line being tuning and timing. Uh, you got to have uh, good timing uh, to resonate with uh, the heartbeat on the street and tuning. Uh, those two elements uh, are not to be forgotten. The reality is what is committed to the tape uh, doesn't fix itself. It has to be um, a well-thought and, and focused approach knowing that this is a repeatable event, whereas on stage, it evaporates rather quickly. Right. Uh, a note played here and a note played there seems to go away, um, which is somewhat forgiving. You just don't want to develop bad habits on Monday but stick with you on Friday because you got to go in the studio on Saturday. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to unravel that muscle memory. <laughs> right. Um, well, after the Tejas album in 1976, you guys took a three-year break, and you know, uh, just thinking about it now, and, and I watched the the documentary the other night on Netflix, and you know, we talk about a three-year break as if it's just kind of a blip in in the career of ZZ Top, but that is a long time. I mean, three years—it it seems like an eternity. Um, you know, and after that, you know, you, you came back in 1979 on a new record label with a new bearded look that would become your trademark and an openness to experimenting with new sounds as evidenced by the instrumentation on songs like Cheap Sunglasses. I'm just thinking three years. I mean, talk about how you spent that time off, um, you know, what it felt like and, and in what ways it impacted your creative energy in the years to come. Yes, uh, we had been, as you pointed out, uh, ZZ Top had worked tirelessly, uh, seemingly endlessly on the road from the time we started and uh, culminating at the bicentennial uh, 1976. We thought, well, uh, let's take a break. Uh, we'll give it, uh, I don't know, uh, give it 90 days. That seemed to be a, a resonant number. And, uh, of course, that 90 days turned into, very quickly, it turned into a year. But we were enjoying the uh, respite from the road. The break was something, uh, I would say, well-deserved. Um, Frank went to Jamaica. Dusty went to Mexico. I moved over to Europe. Uh, we were constantly in touch with each other by telephone. Not cell phone, telephone. <laughs> right. uh, and... Uh, there was no visual contact, but we kept our ear to the ground and knowing that sooner or later this uh, luxurious uh, respite from the road was going to break. But you're, you're so accurate in pointing out 
it activated and recharged the band. And we came back with some really unusual influences. The punk scene in England was raging. Uh, I was in Paris, France with a bunch of artists. We were experimenting with uh, Polaroid film and Xerox machines. Uh, Frank came back with, uh, you know, the famous uh, one-drop beat from uh, Carly Barrett, who was uh, Bob Marley's uh, backbone. Uh, Dusty had picked up some uh, uh, kind of Latin influences. And collectively, I think it was a, it was a unpredicted, uh, unplanned, uh, motivational excursion. And the return was really robust. And uh, 1979, of course, at that moment, uh, we had been wooed by Warner Brothers to join forces. And uh, they had a team that was really keen on taking this ZZ Top sound forward. And so in, but returning to the studio, that that kind of lit the fuse. And uh, it was rather refreshing. I yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Billy Bob Thornton has said that seeing ZZ Top live is like seeing Bugs Bunny in person. There's this really fun, over-the-top, bigger-than-life, cartoonish persona thing that really took hold in the 80s. And, you know, we see a ton of sexual innuendo on 1981's A Loco album with songs like Tube Snake Boogie, Pearl Necklace, Ten Foot Pole. But at the same time, the lead single from that record was Layla, which is kind of a soft, country-influenced pop ballad. that song stands out to me is that you know ZZ Top sings about girls lust sex cars alcohol cheap sunglasses but you don't write many love songs um, and you kind of self-effacingly said earlier that you know you guys aren't aren't Bob Dylan um, but I think it's actually pretty hard to come up with a large body of songs that don't rely much on the familiar topics of, of love and love lost um, John Fogarty's Credence Catalog is the only other example that comes to mind off the top of my head. Um, so it's actually, I think, kind of a unique thing from a songwriting perspective. Uh, what are your thoughts on on why you've typically avoided traditional love songs as a staple of the ZZ Top persona? Yeah. Uh, the reference to Billy Bob Thornton, our good friend, and he's quite uh, accurate when he said uh, seeing ZZ Top is like meeting Bugs Bunny live and in person. Um <laughs> This persona that uh, follows us around uh, can't be avoided. Well, actually, uh, Dusty and I have a have a favorite uh, night out, which happens to be Halloween. And uh, we can walk down the street, and uh, we can turn the corner. Hey, man, dude, you're gonna win the contest. You look exactly <laughs> like <CD> man. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's kind of wild. Uh, but believe it or not, one of the uh, underlying influences was the Beach Boys. Hmm. 
And if you go back to even as far back as 1962, 63, uh, 409, um, and then some of their uh, lush ballads, the melody line that Brian Wilson uh, continually uh, comes up with is, uh, is uneclipsed. Um, it, there's a sound... When you hear it, you know exactly what it is. I think the only other uh, influential uh, similarity would be the melodic moves that uh, Martin Gore from Depeche Mode throws into that group's right. uh, recorded outings. Hmm. There's this melodic meandering uh, in and around different chord changes that are so unexpected. But it was the Beach Boys that brought us back to uh, giving us uh, a shake at uh, that one particular track. Keep in mind that uh, in, we were spending some time in Austin, and the unexpected rise of redneck rock, which is the title of one of our favorite books that chronicles uh, the happenstance that was taking place uh, blossoming out of out of Texas at right. the time. And uh, although I don't think ZZ Top would be classified as a country band, We've thrown a few things, Mexican Blackbird, uh, the Heartbreaker, but uh, Leela uh, with that steel guitar meandering. And, and if you listen to the vocal line, uh, there's a definite Brian Wilson uh, influence. Wow. That's hmm. cool. Yeah, that's true. So so why do you think it is that that, that is such a rare... Uh, love song in the in the ZZ Top catalog. Why 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 have you guys sort of steered away from from love as a as a topic in general? Uh, good question. Um, I think one of the more popular ballads. Uh, it's a Jeff Beck favorite, which he is constantly pressing us to play, uh, either live and on stage when he joins us, or sitting around. Uh, the fireplace is rough yeah. boy. Mm, love that song. Uh, another kind of interesting uh, ballad-like offering, uh, um, but it brings us back to the, you know, the raucousness of, of ZZ has remained, and uh, I don't know. The, the love ballads just kind of fell through the cracks. I don't know. If, I don't know if anybody wants to love us that much. They don't. First of all, they don't know what's underneath these beards. <laughs> 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 it's good. almost like uh, taking that image that you used before. I guess maybe like love song lyrics uh, are kind of like the uh, acoustic guitars of lyrics. Uh, maybe you felt like they're they're bad luck or they're kind of like that sailboat that that you didn't want to drive around. Yes, the closest uh, the closest uh, acoustic endeavor would be the one lonely track uh, entitled "Asleep in the Desert," and when I say acoustic, it's it's performed on a Martin gut string guitar, which really takes it uh, over to Spain, another one of our favorite spots. Uh, just having returned from Spain, I was speaking with our pal uh, in Valencia, Nacho Baño, and Nacho uh, is credited with uh, recreating a Fender electric guitar uh, styled instrument that is absolutely spot on from 1949 and 1950 when the Fender guitar was 
but asleep in the desert. Um, so as an instrumental, it's got a haunting uh, effect in in the chord structure, and uh, we laid the track down, and we realized there's no sense of raspy, harsh voices trying to sing a love ballad. Uh, let's leave it alone, and uh, we moved on. But I think you're right. That's a rarity for CD Top uh, songwriting to get into uh, kind of the lushness that pop love ballads might might bring. Who knows? Uh, today is a different day. Uh, we may find ourselves uh, doing things quite differently. <laughs> Uh, across the board. Yeah, sure. I think you might agree. You know, and speaking of doing things differently, you know, a groovy little hippie pad from that Tejas album, I mean, that that has plenty of synthesizer on it, but the world was about to hear a whole new ZZ Top with the release of the mind-bogglingly successful Eliminator album in 1983, and that was packed with synth sounds uh, as evidenced on the debut single, Give Me All Your Lovin'. that you approached making the Eliminator album from a very, you know, market-driven perspective, I guess, for lack of a better term, you know, even studying the average beats per minute of successful rock songs and, and writing to that tempo. Talk a little bit about the preparation process for making that album. Well, yeah, uh, we were uh, we were working out of Houston, and our good friend uh, Lyndon Hudson was functioning as a house engineer for Frank Beard, and uh, it was it was uh, through some discussions with uh, Lyndon on sentiments and effects, things that uh, might make sense uh, moving forward as the '80s had unfolded. Uh, bands were making uh, headlines mostly from from England. And uh, at that time, the economy in England was not that great. And young upcoming bands had very little time to spend uh, money making an air drum sound over the course of two days. They were barely able to spend uh, two days worth of studio time to get a complete song. And you can enter uh, a very significant element at that juncture was uh, perfect timing, uh, provided by, first of all, uh, tape loops, and then later the drum machine. But when we arrived, uh, we, at that time we had uh, been living in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, the, the famous uh, studio there in Memphis, Ardent Recording, was uh, headed up and owned by uh, John Fry. John Fry had been engineering since his uh, days at Stax, and yet uh, John was one of the few guys that was willing to dig deep in the pocket and invest in the latest and greatest. When you walked into Arden Recording Studios, 
uh, it was a globally renowned, world-class facility. And it was the intent of John Fry and the Legion of Engineers, uh, John Hampton, Terry Manning, and, of course, Joe Hardy. Those three guys, under the uh, tutelage of John Fry, brought the latest and greatest uh, musical madness into the control room. And keep in mind that at that time, the music manufacturers were looking for development of the next best thing. And that's when we started seeing the rise of uh, synthesizers and all kinds of keyboard attachments, fuzz tone pedals galore. Uh, it was uh, a very lively moment uh, from 81, 82 into 83, which uh, brought us face-to-face with the creation of uh, what came out as Eliminator. And uh, again, uh, focus was on uh, tuning, timing, and some great songs, uh, a couple of which were uh, really unusual. TV dinners, of course. We had the uh, music track had been uh, languishing in the background. We didn't know which way to turn. It was going to be called Worried, but that was kind of negative. And uh, one night we had gone to uh, the famous nightclub called Confetti. And lo and behold, a girl walked in in a white painter's jumpsuit. And as she, she strolled past, we saw the word TV dinners spray painted uh, in stencil on, on her back. <laughs> and immediately I said, well, that's it. Uh, there, there's our escape, TV dinners. Who would even dream, who would want to write a song about something so hard? <laughs> well, you know, of course, the videos for Give Me All Your Lovin' and Sharp Dress Man were tailor-made for the MTV generation, did a ton to establish the ZZ Top mystique, which probably hit its zenith with Legs, which was your first top 10 single on the Billboard pop charts. That's one of those songs that has just become a, a staple uh, nowadays. Um, you know, what can you tell us about how that now iconic song came together? Well, yes, yeah, we all love uh, speaking of the mysteries of songwriting here. <laughs> um, there's another one of those happenstance moments when uh, three of us were, were we were piled into a little roadster. I had a uh, single seat roadster. In fact, you can see it in the ZZ Top documentary, 1932 Ford. Uh, and we had wisely put the top up. Normally, we'd have been racing down the roadway to the studio, top down, you know, wind flying, beards uh, whipping us to death. But the top was up because the clouds were, uh, the clouds were uh, gathering, and sure enough, a downpour ensued. And we saw a young girl uh, with, without umbrella, and she was uh, attempting to cross the, the street. And uh, in order to do- 
besides the raindrops, she made a mad dash across the avenue. And I think it was Dusty said, "Hey, uh, make a U-turn. Let's let's uh, put her in the in the jump seat back here." And by the time we turned around, boom, she was gone. And I said, "Man, she was tall. She was lanky. She's got legs, and she knows how to use them. She is gone." <laughs> I love it. So uh, yeah, again, scribbling it down on a piece of paper uh, gave rise to what has remained one of our favorite songs to perform uh, to this yeah. day. So here's what I really want to know about legs. Uh, when I was a kid trying to emulate the spinning guitar trick from the video, all I managed to do was to choke myself in my guitar strap and get <laughs> twisted up in the cord. So uh, can you pull back the curtain and tell us the mystery of how you guys made the guitars spin? Well, you're not alone. Uh, I go back to the moving sidewalks. Uh, the bass player, uh, D.F. Summers, Donald Ferris Summers. Uh, Summers actually had borrowed a, a, a contraption uh, from a lazy Susan and figured out a way to uh, make a spinning uh, bass. And uh, he knew that... Uh, Actually, it can be dangerous if you uh, if you don't lean back when you're spinning the guitar. Uh, you might not get caught up in the cords or the cables, but it sure can whomp you on the side of the head <laughs> if you're not careful. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, trying to get a guitar spin in sync took the better part of the afternoon while we were filming, and uh, Tim Newman was. Uh, uh, he was grinning from the sidelines. He was, as director, he was enjoying uh, the, these. Uh, you know, we were getting beat up on the set, and he was loving it. <laughs> well, you know, it's not too many bands that get the diamond certification on an album from the RIAA, and that means sales of ten million or more. Um, that's exactly what Eliminator did. Um, and the follow-up album, Afterburner, was also wildly successful. I mean, it got you guys uh, a number one single on Billboard's mainstream rock chart in Sleeping Bag. Having come off such massive success with Eliminator, when it came time to write songs for Afterburner, if you'll forgive the pun, uh, did you find that it kind of got you under pressure? <laughs> yes, indeed. It's a lucky day when uh, you stumble into something that resonates with more than uh, a handful. And at the same time, with that glowing luxury, comes the challenge of, well... Let's follow it up, and how do we do that? No one really knows. Uh, you do your best. Uh, going back to that magical uh, moment of songwriting, you got to grab it when you can. Um, Afterburner did provide us uh, a platform in which to stretch out, uh, again, the, the professionalism that you could find at... Uh, 
Arden recording there in Memphis, uh, it made it it made it a little easier. Here we had a team of, of uh, talented guys uh, writing gain on the console, and uh, all we needed was a thumbs up or a, a nod of the head, and we knew we could uh, proceed straight ahead. But there's some really interesting uh, compositions. three singles from 1990s Recycler album all went to number one on the modern rock chart, including My Heads in Mississippi, Concrete and Steel, and Double Back, which topped the chart for five weeks. After 1994's Antenna album, however, you guys kind of moved away from that synth sound and returned to your earlier form with bluesy singles like What's Up With That in 1996 and Fearless Boogie in 1999. And along with that change back to the earlier form um, came a shift from Bill Ham in the producer's chair to you producing the band solo. Um, in what ways, if any, did taking on that producer responsibility impact your songwriting and creative process overall? Well, yeah, I think the good news was along the way, uh, the three of us in, in the top that uh, made some really interesting connections with other musicians, and when we speak of the return to the roots, we, uh, we started uh, stepping outside of the strict trio that C.D. Tuck had remained for decades. For instance, what's up with that starts off with the, uh, James Harmon on harmonica, and James stepped forward to... Uh, I had met James uh, out in California, and uh, being a good old Alabama boy, he knew how to blow the sides off of that <laughs> harmonica. Right. And somehow it seemed to fit. Uh, it worked within Ziggy Tuff's uh, humble beginnings. You know, we were just basically uh, a 12-bar blues band. And James stepped up and delivered... <laughs> 
kind of this melodic accompaniment throughout, and that really opened the door. We saw the value of of inviting our newfound musician friends, uh, GLG Main Moon. We've uh, employed his rhythm guitar prowess, uh, Greg Morrow on drums, the famous uh, Memphis boy from uh, now working through Nashville, Mike Flanagan, uh, Gigi Martin on keyboards, uh, Alex Garza on, on congas, and uh, Elwood Francis. Uh, the list goes on and on. We've, uh, we've expanded the horizon, which uh, I think has managed to keep ZZ Top uh, kind of an interesting and inviting uh, gang of entertainers that uh, just really enjoy what they get to do. We like to do what we get to do. Huh. I love that. That's great. Um, well, for 2012's La Futura album, you brought in Rick Rubin as a co-producer and adapted a hip-hop song called 25 Lighters into a ZZ Top song called Gots to Get Paid. Making moves, making 25 million. You know, what's amazing about that is, you know, by that point you had been together for over four decades, but you're still finding a way to do something fresh and different. Um, as a creator, does that come naturally to you, like your personality, you know, just always sort of staying up on, on what's new and what's out there? Or is that something that you kind of have to discipline yourself to do and, and work at? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, as we spoke about Keith Richards saying, you know, there's a uh, creative uh, stream, it's a, a river running overhead. Uh, you just got to direct the antenna way, way upstream. And hopefully that uh, you, you get it far enough up that uh, by the time it reaches you, it's it's it remains timely and, and it resonates. Um, the, the notion of, of what it means uh, for ZZ Top, for instance, uh, I got to get paid was kind of a afterthought. Uh, I'd worked with Rick Rubin uh, oh, on and off for a couple of decades, and we finally got in the studio together, we had uh, 20 tracks uh, pretty much buttoned up. We felt very confident with the work. And a phone call uh, from Rick, he said, uh, can you give me one more? Well, the engineers became exasperated. Uh, Joe Hardy and Mr. Moon looked at each other, shrugging their shoulders. They got, yeah, we got 20. You only need 10. <laughs> uh, so what do we do? Well, uh, Mr. Moon was in the uh, studio lounge, and he was watching Lightning Hopkins videos. And uh, at the same time, Mr. Moon uh, had been employed uh, with uh, John Moran's Digital Services, another studio down the street from our working room there in Houston. Uh, it's where it's where I met Mr. Moon. Uh, I was. Uh, reconditioning our studio and uh, at the time we were working on we began work on Rhythmine and uh, we went down the street John Moran invited us in to his operation well there was Studio A, Studio B uh, divided by a lounge in 
in the middle. Uh, John Moran's digital services have become quite popular with the uh, rapper uh, scene and the hip-hop scene. He had some great successes with uh, Bushwick Bill, uh, the Ghetto Boys, uh, Destiny's Child came out of Houston. That was Beyonce's outfit. So it was an opportunity to really get uh, creative at the 11th hour. We decided to take a, uh, a song by Fat Pat and Little Kiki, 25 Lighters. And you probably want to Google uh, the term 25 Lighters to understand what it means uh, as a kind of a Houston ghetto term. Uh, I'll leave it to your uh, to your listeners to do their homework. Go, go Google 25 Lighters. <laughs> but uh, ZZ Top is not a particularly uh, proficient as a as a rap group. So it was Mr. Moon listening to Lightning Hopkins. He suggested that we bluesify, which is right in our wheelhouse. <laughs> and that's that's where it landed. And to this day it's one of the uh, it's one of the favorite tunes that we get to play night night after night and we don't seem to get tired of it. It's uh, one of them infectious grooves well, in 2015, you released your album Perfecta Mundo, credited to Billy Gibbons and the BFGs, and it featured a ton of Latin influences on songs like Hombre Sin Nombre. What made you feel like it was time to branch out with a side project at that point after four decades with ZZ Top? Yeah, the the side project was, uh, it jumped up rather unexpectedly. Uh, I had some studio time booked at the same phone box recordings, our our workroom there in in Houston. And the phone rang uh, one morning and uh, Gigi Martins announced there was an interest in appearing at the Havana Jazz Festival. And I said, well, that'd be, uh, that'd, be, that'd be a stretch. He said, no, no. He said, before you say anything, he said, they want you to come down and, and, and play your uh, bluesy licks. And I said, well, I don't want to crash a jazz festival with a rock and roll party. Uh, let me think about this. And uh, I had called the engineers to pick me up at the hotel, and I said, uh, if you don't mind, pick me up on the backside. There's a new restaurant down there that's uh, uh, captured my interest. As I walked down, uh, Mr. Moon was there waiting to drag us over to the studio, and uh, I'd made a mad dash inside, and uh, these guys were speaking Spanish. And they said, Senor, Senor. And I grabbed a business card. The name of the restaurant was Spanish for Salt and Pepper. And when I arrived at the studio, uh, both Mr. Moon and Mr. Hardy said, okay, so what are we going to do? Well, I got an invitation to go to Savannah. I just jumped into a Cuban restaurant. I said, I've got the business card. Here's the song title, Sali Pimiento. And they said, "Uh uh-oh. He finally lost his mind. He thinks he's 
going <laughs> Cuban. What they didn't know is uh, when I was when I was about twelve, I, I was banging on things around the house. Finally, my my musical dad said, "Listen," he said, "If you're going to continue doing this, you better learn how to do it right." And at that moment, uh, school was letting out. He put me on a plane. I wound up in Manhattan, going down to Spanish Harlem and studying with my dad's buddy, Tito Puente. Wow. And uh, I, I remember I was by myself. I remember uh, getting out of a cab, walking up, uh, knocking on the door, and the, the, uh, there was Tito Puente. He flung the door open and he thrust a couple of timbali sticks and said, show me what you want to play. <laughs> That started it, and uh, it started with Bali, went to Congo, Bongo, Maracas, Claves, Pescado, you name it. If there was a Latin uh, percussion to be heard, uh, I was forced into to embracing it and learning it. So it was those chops that, that came back, and uh, lo and behold, we we down the path, um, we wound up building a uh, beautiful uh, five-piece band. Uh, again, Mike Flanagan was on B3, Kiki Martin was on piano. We had two girl drummers, uh, Melanie DiLorenzo and Sozo Diamond. Uh, both these young gals had uh, escaped from Las Vegas. They were on break, and I managed to snag them. Uh, Alex G was uh, on turntables in the back. And what what showed up was uh, the release of Perfecto Mundo on John Burke's Concord record label, which became uh, an unexpected success. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, there you have it. Uh, again, something so unpredictable. If you play your cards right, if you Keep an ear to the ground and, and stay serious. Uh, things do tend to unfold in a positive manner, and it gets so enjoyable. And those kind of moments do tend to get into the into the group. Yeah, yeah. You know, looking at the range of, of activities, you know, from exploring kind of that Latin jazz influence side of things to adapting hip hop songs to releasing a pretty much traditional blues album, the big bad blues in 2018, you're still very much exploring different territories. Um, You're stimulating yourself creatively in all kinds of cool ways. That's very inspiring to, to see after having been in the business for so many years. And at the same time, ZZ top is, is still doing it still on the road 50th anniversary last year with the same lineup, which is virtually unheard of in in rock history. Um, What is it? What's the, what's the special sauce that's kept you guys together all this time? I think it's uh, I think it's the urgency of uh, my two partners, uh, Dusty Hill, and again uh, the beardless Mr. Frank Beard on drums. They've uh, encouraged me to continue working with the likes of uh, from Depeche Mode to David Guetta to uh, you know Jimmy Vaughn and Mike Flanagan's outfit playing anything from crazy dance music to gut bucket blues. Uh, 
thanks, fellas. And they said, yeah, you go on and do it. We're going to we're going to have it. We're going to enjoy a nice holiday. <laughs> but that's what keeps us together. Because when CD Top gets back on stage, it's anybody's guess. It's a pedal to the metal. Uh, what kept us together is the fact that none of us know who's going to make the first mistake. <laughs> Well, Billy, thank you so much yeah, for uh, taking some time to uh, to talk about your career and, and your songwriting process. This has been a, a lot of fun for us. Man, this has been a uh, time travel. This, this is so engaging and so entertaining. i got to just say thanks, man. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Absolutely, and I hope your uh, quarter-inch cable shows up soon. <laughs> I think so, yeah. You guys keep doing what you do because uh, we're big fans and... Mm. Uh, on your end, on my side, I'm going to take the advantage of this uh, energized moment to go write a song. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.